This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by NerdHost.com. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your clients' web applications? NerdHost.com is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new sign-up referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to FreelancerShow.com slash nerd and answer Freelancer into the contact form as a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 191 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark... Hello. And Philip Morgan. Greetings. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And this week we are going to be talking about trust and uh, specifically how do you establish and maintain trust with your clients? So let's start with a general question, which is what is trust and why do we care about it? Ooh, wasn't expecting that angle. <laughs> Curveball. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a great answer. For, I, I think I have a perfect answer for that. Trust is what we sell. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. That's a circular definition. (laughs) (laughs) You, the amount of money that you can charge for your services, especially if they're, you know, what I would consider true consulting services where you're giving people advice is directly proportional to how much the person trusts that you're right. And if you're not doing traditional consulting, then, and you're doing, say, software development, the trust is in your ability to actually deliver what you say you're going to deliver. And if they uh, don't trust you that you can do that, their risk is going to be, their, their sense of risk is going to be super high and therefore they are not going to pay you as much. I think that's absolutely right. I think there's some sort of qualities that trust has, like there's the kind of trust that you feel when you sit down on a chair and you know, it's going to, going to hold together and, I think that comes from like, well, it's, it's never not worked in the past, right? So there's like that kind of belief that the track record is going to repeat itself in the future. And I think there's also a, a sort of another quality of like 
a more emotional sort of aspect to trust wherein someone is like, yeah, I don't, I don't doubt at all that they're going to do the right thing for the situation or, or for me or for the relationship. I think there's like an emotional quality that is easy to ignore that I think is important. Yeah. It's yeah. about dependability and predictability. Yeah, very much so. And also I think putting their interests, I don't know if first, but at least considering their interests, right? I mean, how, how often have we heard? And, and I mean, Jonathan, you speak to this a lot when you talk about hourly billing versus value-based pricing, but you know, if I go into a client and I suggest a solution, they want to know that I'm suggesting it because that's what's best for them. That's what's going to move them ahead. Not because, oh, I can, you know, squeeze more hours out of this or because I'll get paid more because this is the only solution I know, right? You know, if the only tool you have the hammer, everything looks like a nail sort of thing. But if you're willing to say, you know, I, I think that there's something that could work and yet I don't know that much about it. Let's work on it together because I think that might be the best solution. I, I think they, they want you to see that you're thinking about them, not just you. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I guess another way to look at it is trust decreases the sense of risk. Mm-hmm. If your financial incentives are aligned, then it's going to automatically generate trust. If your incentives are misaligned, then it's not going to automatically generate trust or it's going to create a potential for suspicion on the client's part that you might not be working as fast as you could be since you're financially incentivized to take longer. Mm-hmm. So even though you might be 100% honest and above board and ethical and literally everyone I've ever worked with or I coach on this fits into that category. Like, you know, people aren't padding their hours. They're not lying about it, but the financial incentives are, if they're not aligned, it's going to be very difficult to prevent that sneaking suspicion from entering the client's mind. If you get to a point where you're over budget and they're, and you know, maybe their jobs on the line, they start to get nervous and it's like they turn into the incredible Hulk. Okay, so given that trust is what we sell, trust is we, what we can use to get higher rates or get paid at all, so how, how do we establish that? Like, let's say you've got a new client, new potential client, someone contacts you. Is that a point when you want to or have to establish trust? And if so, how do you do it? Yes, definitely. I think so, it's at least for what I do, which, again, is like pretty much pure consulting. I'm not doing any software development anymore, but I'm mostly managing those sorts of processes. And from the very first contact, I am cognizant of things like keeping my promises. You know, if I say I'm going to call you back on a particular date, I make sure to do it or email back on a particular date, I make sure to do it. Uh, if I don't do it, then I know that I'm damaging even in a very tiny way. You know, they might not even notice, but, but if they do in a very tiny way, I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And if I can't even call them back on a particular date that I said I would, then, you know, what's going to happen when the uh, mud is hitting the fan, so to speak. So I think that, yes, every single interaction is an opportunity for you to build more trust. And in a very early stage of the relationship, I do that by keeping promises, even very small ones. I, I do it by making small promises and then keeping them. I make the promises on purpose. And then another thing I'll do once we, let's say we finally get on a phone and we're actually talking about the project, I will, uh, you've heard me say this before, uh, I will try and talk them out of working with me or I, I will at least force them to validate to me that I am a good solution to the situation that they're in. And that means pushing back on their sort of self-diagnosis or their preconceived notions about things that fall under my expertise, not theirs. So I will 
test their uh, hypotheses. And if it turns out at the end of an hour-long phone call that I think that I'm not really the right solution, and in fact they should just use their in-house team or send them to training or something, uh, then I'll do that. And I think it's a huge trust builder when you're talking to someone who's clearly considering giving you money and you refusing it, or at least you know not not just blindly accepting it. For me, that's been a gigantic trust builder in that stage of the relationship where you're still trying to potentially land the deal. For sure. I was contacted on Skype on Saturday night by this guy I'd never heard of before saying, listen, I need some help with Python. Maybe you can help me out. And then we spoke a little bit on Sunday. And at the end of the conversation, I said, listen, I don't think I'm really going to be able to help you out. We're just sort of not in that right space and we don't have the right time right now. And he said, wow, I'm so grateful that you were so straightforward and honest with me. If we can work together in the future, I really want to do that. Now, all I told him was I cannot work with him. But the fact that I was sort of not just saying, yes, 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 let me see how I can squeeze you into my schedule because the more money, the better. That was a, a huge positive. Nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I think that building trusts can start even further back on the timeline of the relationship with a client. I think it can start even before you've had that first phone conversation or that first email exchange. So to me, you know, of course, I'm the, like the marketer in the room. So I'm talking about how you do that through, through your marketing. And I think it's worth thinking about how can you start to build up trust through your marketing? Uh, I've started to say that really, you know, any kind of marketing that I do is meant to optimize that trust building to build as much trust as quickly and, and as effectively as possible early on. So. Case studies are one way people try to do that. That might be an interesting sort of subtopic to talk about. And I, I think case studies are so interesting because they should be inherently untrustworthy because who's writing the case study, right? It's the client is writing it about a project that they're sorry, you're writing about a project you did for a previous client or you're hiring somebody to write it for you. And I mean, you know, that, that would like be not admissible testimony in court, <laughs> right? Uh, you're just kind of saying, well, just believe me. But yeah, that's, uh, that tool gets relied upon a lot for, uh, trying to build trust before you make the sale or be, before you have that sales conversation. So I think it's interesting. I don't really have a solution to that, but that to me is an interesting thing that people should consider when they're trying to build trust is are, are the tools that you're using in your marketing the right tools for building trust? I've definitely found one of the interesting things I've discovered in my mailing list and doing my webinars is they're definitely building trust. Like people are growing to know my style. If they don't like it, they tend to leave, right? So it's in many ways a self-selecting group, but that's okay for everyone, right? That's good for everyone. But the email that I get from people is definitely one of they know me, I don't want to say intimately, but like more, more than just some random person off of the internet. And the more that I give them sort of that, that warm, fuzzy feeling through writing, through videos, through interactions. Interactions. You know what? I, I, th I think the key thing is interactions there. The more they're interacting with me um, and the more they stick with me, the more they're going to trust me and then want to do more with me in the future. Yeah. You need more than one opportunity to build that trust, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one email might do it, but it's unlikely. And actually, just in the last week from the last message I sent to my mailing list, I got a bunch of people saying... You know, I liked what you wrote. I previously read your things here, or I previously saw your things there. So they are drawing a direct association, even though if they'd never emailed me, I never would have heard of them. But for the, for their perspective, they've now heard me or, or read my work a second, a third, or fourth time, 
And that sort of put them over the edge toward, hey, let's contact him and make it a two-way street. Yeah, that actually brings up a point that I put down in my notes before the show, which is asymmetric interactions and symmetric interactions. So what you're describing is sort of a broadcast that, you know, like the, a blog, a bunch of blog posts or email, you know, it, email is maybe a little bit in the middle because people can reply. If you have comments on your blog, maybe you could consider it bidirectional, uh, but it's not symmetric. So if you're having, if you're having, or I should, I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe I should be saying synchronous, asynchronous and synchronous, but regardless, the point is that, you know, if you're having a, a one-to-one interaction with someone, that is going to be almost certainly a better way or a quicker or more effective way to build trust more quickly than a, a one-to-many type of situation. And then, so that's sort of one axis I would consider. And the other axis I would consider is the media or the medium that you're using for that communication. So if we had like a double axis chart, an in-person one-to-one interaction has got to be the most likely place to build trust. You know, then the same information communicated over email in a one-to-many fashion would kind of be in the, the opposite quadrant. So the least likely or the slowest to build interaction, uh, trust. And then you've kind of got this other factor, sort of third dimension, which is what message is it that you're communicating? That, you know, if you're, if I'm communicating in any of those factors, if I'm communicating information that's all about me and trying to do anything to land the job and I'm breaking promises like crazy, then it's still not going to build trust even if I'm doing it in person. But if you're doing things like trying to talk them out of working with you, giving them better, cheaper options that might fit the bill, then you're more likely to be building trust. And this, I guess this, the intensity or speed at which it happens is affected by uh, the number of people involved in the medium using. That's been my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. I think I just came up with the next graph for Phillips. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's funny. I started working on that this morning. I call it the trust velocity. I think I think it works best as a scatter plot. So on the one dimension, you have like how quickly does it build trust? And on the other, how much trust does that thing build? Talking or sending out an email to your list or what have you. I think it does make for a pretty interesting way of you know, kind of surveying all the things you could be doing to build trust and maybe isolating the two or three that are, are right for you. Yeah. So if you imagine that you've got a particular, let, let's say you have one particular message and you want to communicate it in a way that's going to generate the most trust, then, you know, because you could deliver the same message in a, a bunch of different ways, then you could say, okay, for certain situations, then, you know, for like a, a well-qualified lead, then picking up the phone is definitely the way to go. If it's not a qualified lead, then probably a mailing list might be a good way to go or a podcast like this where you've got a broadcast situation. So it's not synchronous. It's not two-way, but people are at least are, are hearing your voice, which I think is much more intimate than reading words written on a page. Yes. So that's pretty, now that we're really drilling into this, there's a lot of factors involved. There really are. I think one of the interesting things about this is that let's say there are a hundred ways that you could build trust with the kind of clients you're trying to attract. I I would say that you don't want to just focus on one and you don't want to try all 100. (laughs) You want to pick, you know, a, a manageable number. And some of them should be, I think, the kind of things that build trust, a lot of trust quickly. 
it, maybe that's enough, but I think it's good to have some diversity. We, we've talked about before on this show how public speaking builds a lot of trust real fast. You know, if, if you don't screw it up and if you get a few things right, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think that it's good to, have, to not just have that one strategy, even though it seems to be like the one that does the most in the shortest amount of time. From a marketing perspective, you're, you're letting things fall through the cracks if that's your only strategy. So it's, it's good to mix in some that build trust more slowly uh, over a longer time horizon, maybe. Sure, not not least which because different people consume information differently, but also doing speaking gigs doesn't scale at all. It's very, very time consuming. It has a very high cost, uh, even if you're getting paid. I mean, you have to travel around a lot. It's extremely disruptive. So having some other approaches that scale better and are maybe more, maybe are going to get to an audience that prefers to get their information in a, a different format makes that, a lot of sense. Yeah. All the things that we've been saying, by the way, I mean, the, it seems that they all can apply to someone at whatever stage of consulting they're at, right? You can totally be new and just hang out your shingle this morning and already start to do all these things, or at least some of these things, whether it's, you know, the, the marketing material you present or the ways in which you contact people or when someone contacts you, the way you talk to them. Uh, this is not just something for, for people who are established, Although obviously I have to assume that the more you're out there and the sort of the longer you've been in business, right? That's why all these companies say since 1845, we've been providing this because they're, they're trying to also build trust, right? We've been good enough to survive that long. We're probably good enough for you. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do, I want to add on to that by saying if you're brand new and starting out, you're likely to have the mindset that you haven't proven yourself and you're likely to have a lot of doubt. And I think that those are things that should not stand in your way of, you know, doing what you can to build trust. It's just very common to think, well, you know, I'm new at this. I don't, I don't have a track record. So I guess that means I'm screwed, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can build trust even without having an extensive track record. Mm -hmm. So let's move a little into like the, the past, so, so the, you know, this is sort of before people contact you and then contact you. So you start an engagement with a client. Now the key thing is not to establish trust, but to maintain it or to sort of convince them that they made the right decision, right? They weren't idiots for hiring you and they're not wasting their money. So what sort of things can you do during the engagement? Because obviously we, we want to have return engagements and have them keep coming back to us again and again for different things. So what can we do for in order to encourage that? Yeah, there's a... I think you do the same things, but you want to be sensitive to the potential for that post-purchase buyer's remorse danger zone, uh, because it can color the whole project if you do something, something subpar right after the project starts. So, you know, for it's, it's tempting in my situation, it can be tempting to, you know, you, you're pitching a client, you get the, the gig. I asked for, I ask for a hundred percent payment up front. So for me, it's like a, a major touchdown when I get a new client and it's like, Yahoo, but, but really the work has just begun and there's potential that, you know, you know, what buyer's remorse is that they might just be like, Oh, what have I done? Like, how did he <laughs> swayed me under his spell somehow? <laughs> and, and I sent him this giant check and well, you know, so the last thing you want to do is kind of encourage that line of thinking by, missing your first meeting 
or being late for your first meeting or showing up in jeans or, you know, or some inappropriate outfit or like, it's not the time to relax right after, right after the deal closes is the worst time to relax in my opinion. And you definitely want to be top of your game, top presentation, everything you want to communicate. I think the a big thing throughout the course of a project is to communicate like crazy communicate probably more than you think you need to and and just really be sensitive to that first week or two after a project kicks off that uh, you want to absolutely nail everything dot your i's and cross your t's just to get them over that hump and then once you get into a rhythm people are going to be so much more comfortable and you're going to you know probably have spoken with other people on the team and the project contact who may be the only person that you've spoken with throughout the entire lead up to the sale you know maybe that first meeting you have is is the first meeting with the entire team so imagine being late for that or not showing or uh, whatever you know that would be really bad because now you're making your your project contact who is the one who trusts you look foolish in front of his or her peers or worst case scenario, their bosses. So anyway, so, you know, that period right after the sale is critical to nail. Yeah. You're reminding me now of, I had something, I guess it was about six, eight months ago where a big company called me and wanted to give some training to their technical writers. And I knew someone who worked there, like someone at the company had sort of suggested that they pull me in to do this. He's not only a, a friend from where I live, but also, um, had seen me speak at a few conferences for technical writers where I talked about some technical stuff. So it was just the worst combination of traffic and parking. And of course I discovered I didn't have their phone number. And so I walk in there, it must've been like 15 minutes late after having desperately tried to find them. I think I managed to find my friend's phone number and SMS him and say, I'm going to be late. I'm really horribly sorry, but you could see on their faces. I, I walk in there and they're thinking, what is going on? Who is this guy? And of course, the other thing is I didn't realize who I was going to be meeting with. I just thought it was going to be my friend and maybe one other person, but they'd actually invited like five or six other people to meet with me as well. So I was wasting a lot of people's time and I felt pretty bad about that and apologized profusely. I mean, it went off well in the end, but I definitely felt the responsibility to make up for a lot of uh, foolishness seeming uh, as a result of that first interaction. Mm, ouch. <laughs> they paid me late anyway. It's okay. <laughs> They <laughs> got you on the back end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it comes down to communication for sure. I, another thing to me that can sort of be corrosive to, to the trust that you've built up is making clients wait a long time to see results. So, and I, I imagine this is doubly so if they've paid you up front. I don't like to see a lot of time between money changing hands and some kind of tangible result. I, I oh, try to getting points on the board. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I definitely have adapted how I do things. I mean, that's part of what I like about working on a weekly basis with clients is as usually it's just a few days before they see something tangible, which I, I think really helps. Agreed. Get points on the board ASAP. It's, it's same, same sort of thing. You know, that sensitive period right after the, right after money changes hands, you really want to be scoring. Right. In, in part because you, you want to show that you're giving them the kinds of quality and the kinds of service they've paid for. And in part because you want to surprise them. Oh, wow. They've already gone back to me with this. Um, I found that sometimes if I can't get results to people soon, it's often sort of, and, and this might be completely transparent, but I hope it's not. 
um, and I hope they're not listening, but to sort of send some questions to them, right? Like increase the interactions or try to set up a phone call. So they can tell that I'm engaged. They can tell I'm working on it, even if I haven't gotten them any results yet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even if you have to structure something a little bit artificial into the project to to make that happen, I think that's definitely worth thinking about. Philip, you said you had some uh, ideas, not necessarily just during the engagement, but uh, before and maybe other time periods. What were you thinking? I have this. I have this idea that in the absence of certain sensory input <laughs> that would normally increase or potentially increase someone's trust in you, like they can look in your eyes and see if you're lying. Like that's a, that's a big one, right? And, and in the absence of that, I think that people try to sort of substitute other things as a way to assess whether someone is trustworthy. So uh, one of the things that I think that gets substituted is regularity. And that's why I'm quickly becoming a fan of, at least in email marketing, emailing frequently and, and regularly and, and consistently. I think that that sort of becomes a proxy by which people start to measure your trustworthiness. Like, wow, okay, if they can do this thing that nobody else seems to be able to do, which is to show up in my inbox on a regular basis, you know, I can't see in their eyes to see if they're uh, trustworthy. I can't hear their tone of voice, but I can judge them based on this criteria. So I think it's worth thinking about for however it is that you market yourself, what what are the ways in which a client determines if you're trustworthy and try to optimize for, you know, for those those things, whatever they are, whether they're showing up regularly, whether they're, you know, uh, only sending a 5,000 word or longer article, which I think is what uh, Patrick McKenzie decided at some point was how <laughs> people were going to trust him was, you know, every time he wrote something, it was going to like bring it, you know? So I just think it's worth uh, thinking about how do, how do your clients assess whether you're trustworthy and whatever it is, do more of that or do a better job of that. Your point about being able to look into people's eyes and so forth is especially relevant because so many of us are working remotely. Right. So if I, and I mean, now, now a lot of my work I mean my actual work day to day is in person because I'm training people typically in person. That's like, you know, 90% of it, 80% of it. But I mean, I still have remote clients with whom I work and it's a definitely a different dynamic. And I definitely feel that I need to push harder on the communication, probably even more than I, than I do now so that they'll see that I'm around, right? Even simple things like just sort of nodding heads and looking into their eyes. It really does make a difference. Right. That those body language signals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's a question, Reuven, for you. So you walk into, let's say you walk into a classroom and you've got, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen students there and they're meeting you for the first time. How do you gain their trust in that situation? I think however you do that, we probably can take some lessons from that. That's a really good question. So the way it typically works is I'll get into a company and I mean, if it's a new company, let's say, or even, you know, even an existing company, it's going to be a new group where I, I don't necessarily know the, the students. The training manager usually sort of brings me there, at least in theory, they bring me there. And I might have had some interactions with them before. So there's a little bit of a bridge there. But right, then they leave and they sort of leave me in the training room waiting for people to come in. So I'll sort of chat with them a little bit as they come in. But I think the real point when the trust starts to happen and when I start to have the interactions is um, when I introduce myself. And I tell them a little bit about myself and my history. And then we go around the room and I ask everyone, what is their name and why are they here? <laughs> and then I, I sometimes make a little joke, like, aside from the boss telling you, you must show up. And, and like, what's your background and what do you hope to get out of this? And you could make a good argument that it's a, a waste of 15, 20 minutes as we go around. But I don't, no one's ever complained about this. And for me, it's gold. 
because it allows me to interact with them. And I can sometimes ask them, you know, follow-up questions as it were, like, oh, you did this, you did that, that's really interesting, and how do you do this in your work? And they begin to understand that I'm interested in pushing them ahead in their work and, and helping their careers, not just, you know, come, teach, and, and go away. And the, now, the funny thing is I learned this technique from the training company that I'd worked for during my, what they called my screen test. So I, I went there to sort of practice or, or, or yeah, test being a trainer. And I did it for one person. She was the, the, the director of training there. And she said, okay, I'm in the audience. Pretend you're starting your training. Go. And I just sort of you know, said, hi, you know, I'm Ruben. And then I started to go into it. And afterwards, she said, boy, that was terrible. She didn't want to hire me like other people did and convinced her. But she said, at the very least, go around the room and find out who's there. And I thought about doing it, but it was just one person, right? It didn't make a difference. And since she said that, I've done that every time. And I really feel like it's been worth a ton, both that I can use right then and in building the trust there and information I can use later on. Because then I can say, you know, even a day later, oh, I remember some of you said that you used to use Perl. This is where Python is similar to Perl. And that helps them to understand I'm sort of on their side and remembering who they are. Here's what I take away from that. It would be tempting to think the, the best way to build trust in a situation like that, when you're kind of drop parachuting in cold to a group of people, is to like bowl them over with your your credentials, like really impress them with your depth of experience and yada yada. But uh, what I hear you saying is it's much more effective to show an interest in them and and ask the right kind of questions. That you know that at least is an essential ingredient and maybe is the most important ingredient in that situation. Yeah, because it's what, what's. <laughs> I think you're right because on no small number of occasions, people have come to me at the end of a course and said, wow, you know, we really like this and everything. Tell us, do you do consulting? Which means that they completely ignored what I said at the beginning, right? Which is written on the slides and I mention it. Like, basically, they are not interested in hearing about my credentials because I think they figure anyone who showed up probably knows what they're doing to some degree or another. But giving, yeah, giving them a chance to express themselves makes it more interesting to them, gives them skin in the game. I think it shows them that you're not needy. You're not hustling for scraps of work that you can just pick up by, by badgering people into hiring you. You, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're confident. You, you're, you're there to give and be a source of information, not, not to take from them. And I think that does a lot to increase trust. Yes. I totally second all of this for, especially for, any kind of workshop or training class or even a, a speaking engagement where it's not as, let's say, educational. What am I trying to say? It's like a little bit more sage on stage, you know, like I'm going to come up and, and try and broaden your thinking about the future of technology, something like that, um, whether it's not like a workbook or something. And in those situations, I do a very similar thing where I, as people are filing in at the beginning, I'll take some of those brave souls who sat in the front row and ask them their name, ask them where they're from, ask them why they picked my talk over all the other ones that are going on. Mm, and like it that. makes a lot of, it just helps me on stage. I can relate to a couple of people. I can say things like, uh, you know, I know there's at least a couple of people here that are interested in boom, X, Y, Z, uh, you know, and you sort of make eye contact with them and, you know, they nod back at you and stuff. And it's super powerful. I think that it's really, really a lot better than sort of being that kind of, unassailable, potentially arrogant know-it-all that just blasts through, you know, a gigantic CV of how awesome they are. Mm -hmm. But it, the whole thing reminds me of an, a different scenario where you're just in a, you're in a client meeting, 
which is which is probably more common for me where I've got this you get that like five minutes at the beginning of a meeting where people are still shuffling papers and, and coming in, whether it's a whether it's a virtual call or in person. And when I was younger, the sort of small talk, talking about the weather and things like that, at the beginning of those meetings used to drive me insane. I thought that was it was a silly waste of time and we should just get down to business. And I was like that jerk that would be you know, kind of cut somebody off in the middle of the thing and just be like, okay, here's the agenda, you know? And uh, I don't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that, that that sort of talking about the weather at the beginning is a critical piece of gaining trust, getting to know each other. And it's not just dopey, you know, waste of time or people stalling or whatever. Uh, it's actually quite valuable to the relationship. And once I got over that, that sort of naive opinion, I, and, and saw it for what it was, I was like, well, it's, it's 100% on the money. I wish I knew where I read it uh, because whoever wrote it was 100% right. Probably uh, Miss Manners, right? Your, your big Miss Manners. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> related to that, I used to be afraid to ask clients about how their business was going. I, I kind of put myself voluntarily, you know, out of fear or inexperience or both, just kind of put myself in the hired hand category. And what I've found since then is that it's it's not that hard to sort of promote yourself out of that category by starting to ask what, what at first feel like very nosy questions. Like, you know, how's, how's your business going is the just the absolute easiest one to ask. And another one, you know, would be like, so, uh, you know, What's, what are your business priorities for the next quarter? What, what are, what are the big needles you're trying to move? Stuff like that is so easy to deploy in that early on chit chat part of a meeting. And I think it increases trust because you are, you're simply, you're implying that, you know what, you can tell me this stuff. I'm worthy of knowing that information and I'm, I'm worthy of being trusted with that information. So I guess what I'm saying is that part of, part of building trust just comes from positioning yourself as trustworthy. Sorry, that got a little messy and, and meta there. But yeah, I, I think that's that's part of it too, is not you sort of project to the world that you're worthy of trust is, is really what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you're, you're onto something interesting there. I've never thought about this explicitly, but I think you're right on the money. It's like if you ask a question that has a sensitive answer, just very confidently and calmly and like, I'm here to answer questions that are like this, you know, call it, it's sort of like, Sort of like you, you wouldn't ask a stranger a personal question necessarily, but you might ask, you know, the closer you are with someone, the more personal the question would be. And it's kind of like, it sort of feels related to that where, you know, you're kind of saying by asking the question that you can be trusted with that kind of data and that it's a totally normal thing for people to trust you with. Mm. So, yeah, That's like you, point. like your doctor, I don't really know my doctor that well, but he asks me some pretty personal questions, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and it's just, and it has a lot to do with the delivery though. Like you, you can't force this stuff. It needs to be, this is going to sound really trite, but it needs to be from a genuine place. Like you need to really be asking that question for a good reason and be able to take the resulting information and turn it into something valuable. It, it, it might happen during the small talk phase, but that's not small talk. That's like important sort of like value conversation type of stuff. It is. At the, at the doctor example to me says what you need to do is is it, it's kind of delivered in a matter of fact way. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, 
no one asks about my prostate except a doctor, right? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I hope not. He's just, he's just doing it because it's part of the job, right? And th- to me, that's an example of like, you know, it, it's just a matter of fact thing. He just needs to know so he can deliver an effective diagnosis. Yeah, it's a good parallel. I love the doctor analogy for the kind of work I'd like to see more freelancers doing, which is partnering and not just being a pair of hands that cranks out code or, or you know, typography or whatever. I don't think I've ever gone so far as to ask like how business is going, but I often ask if it's like a non, actually even my training clients, like if I, if we're having lunch together or I'll say, so like how many people work here? What sort of work do you do? Like what kinds of projects are you working on? And it helps me both to get a, a better sense of what the business is doing and how I can aim my work, whether it's consulting or training or development, but also like, you know, it gives me a sense of, okay, are, are we talking about a, you know, a 20 person company, a 200 person company, a 200 person branch of a 20,000 person company. Cause it's not always obvious. And I'm just getting that. And also I, I'm sort of fascinated by hardware and manufacturing um, because I'm so clumsy and not good at doing it. And so like, I'm in awe of these companies that make hardware and I, I'm always asking them, Oh, and how do you do this? And how do you do that? And it's partly, you know, just sort of selfish curiosity and partly I really think that if I learn more about how they do things, I can give them more effective service. And I think that they realize that and they're, they're willing to share it. Yeah. I mean, you're just being super genuine, you know, and people's BS detectors are well, like extremely well calibrated. And, you know, if you, even if you did something like, even if you came in, you're like, oh, it wouldn't be professional for me to ask all these prying questions about stuff that's maybe orthogonal to what we're supposed to be working on. So I'll just be professional and, you know, stick to the script sort of thing. I don't like, I don't recommend that people do that. Like try to be professional. It's a fine line though, isn't it? I think you need to be yourself, but you need to be in a mode that's appropriate to the situation, but not to the point where you're not in yourself, if that made sense. So you you don't want to be pretending to be something you're not. That's for sure. But you also don't want to treat a client meeting like you're in a locker room, obviously. So it's a sense of appropriateness is important, but not to the point where you're pretending to be like putting on a role that's uncomfortable for you because then it's just going to, it's like wearing a, wearing shoes that don't fit. You're just, everything's going to be wrong. Also, be how, how, how often are people asked about their work by someone who is not there, who actually cares? Right. Yeah, they love it. <laughs> right. You know, cause all these people come home from work and they want to talk about it at home and no one, no one could care less. and here you're coming in you actually want to help them out and improve it but you're an outsider and that's that's i think pretty rare in my experience sorry i'll just quickly in my experience no matter how boring the business sounds on the surface if you ask like two layers deep of questions you're going to find some really interesting stories 100 percent. if you are genuinely curious you can find an interesting story in just about any business oh i totally agree Uh, you know i was going to bring up the question of how do you measure trust? Like, how do you know if person A, client, potential client B, trusts you a little or a lot? What do you look for? Oh, that's funny. I don't know if this is quite the answer to the question you're asking, but I can always tell when I'm having a value conversation with somebody. So this is the, this is the moment of truth conversation that you have before I'm going to deliver a, propo- a proposal. I can always tell when I got the job because they start talking about we instead of you. Oh, and that's great. It happens almost every time. Nice. Uh, 
I should say every time it happens, I get the gig. But really, it's it'd be something like if they told a joke that I thought was that I generally thought was hilarious, like they crack a joke near the end of the call, or they do something that's just more personable. It's like they do something revealing that's in a some small way vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Then uh, then you can you can feel it. You can uh, man, it's hard to it's hard to describe. I'm trying to like think back to examples when I noticed it. Um, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah, I notice potential clients volunteering information beyond what I ask. And I think that's a pretty good signal that there's some trust built up already. Yep, sort of, yeah, just sharing. Basically, yeah. Or instead of getting like sort of yes-no answers, you get answers that elaborate and go deeper. I think that's a signal that that someone trusts you enough to go to the next step, whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, what are the big takeaways? It's, I feel like this is the takeaway from a lot of them. Communication. <laughs> Every week, right? Communication. Yeah. Yeah. Communication and, 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 but also like genuinely be interested in helping them and communicate that through the communication and through questions and then being responsive, right? Once you have that information, either what they want to do or how they want to move ahead, let them know that you've understood that. Not just by saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's interesting, but by then doing your job, which is producing reports, setting up meetings, and, and being, uh, you know, giving them the value that they think they've signed up for. Yeah, you know, here's a takeaway for me that I just apologize is going to be going to start with a rant. Um, <laughs> in freelancer circles, it's quite common to, you know, when people start kvetching about stuff, it's pretty common to hear them say some, like, nasty dismissive things about their clients and i think jonathan would agree with me here a lot of the stuff they're complaining about is things that they or other freelancers have trained their clients to do like oh yeah we'll just pay you in 60 or 90 days or whenever you get around to beating the money out of us or that's a good example you know late payment and uh, and not that there aren't some legitimate aspects to that but I feel like what happens is it kind of develops an us versus them mentality. And how I think that is a, relevant to what we're saying now is someone's got to go first. If you want to increase the like net total amount of trust in a situation between two people, someone's got to decide to go first. And Jonathan has mentioned, you know, being vulnerable. And I guess what I want to say is, you can, you as the uh, freelancer or the consultant can decide to go first. It will require that you risk a little bit of vulnerability and it will mean that sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want. And in absolutely extremely rare cases, you'll get taken advantage of. But to me, that's still not a reason to go first because if you go first, I think you can, you know, crank up the trust a lot higher than if you don't. And to me, that will be very beneficial to almost any freelancer's career. So that's my takeaway is someone's got to go first and uh, and there's lots of little opportunities to go first in, in very small ways. Any more uh, thoughts or insights before we get into picks? I mean, I just have to put in a plug for against hourly billing on this whole thing. I think billing, committing to a price before a project starts conveys a lot of confidence and it uh, aligns the financial incentives for both parties and it makes it a lot easier for trust to grow once the project begins. So it's not really a, a show about that, but I think that it's closely related. And when I see that us versus them mentality, which drives me crazy, uh, I think a lot of times it can be traced back to you know, 
bad estimates, bad scope definition, hourly bill, all stuff related to hourly billing. So yeah, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't help myself. <laughs> That's fine. Jonathan, um, you know, you can, you know, you can get your name legally changed to Jonathan, uh, anti hourly <laughs> billing Stark. <laughs> hourly billing is a cancer Stark. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> How about you, Ruben? Big, big takeaways for you? Um, again, I think the, the big takeaways are it's the communication, it's the thinking about them, it's putting them first, and it's making sure that with everything you do, whether it's speaking or working or, um, uh, or talking or meeting, you're always thinking about how can I not only get them ahead, but how can I make it clear to them that I want to get them ahead? And that their interests are my interests, at least when I'm with them. Um, and the more obvious you can make that without being like <laughs> outrageous and, uh, you know, sounding like a, a fool or, or not sincere, I think the, the better for everyone. And I think all of us have found that when we have clients where it's good for everyone, like good for us and good for them, it's just fantastic for everyone. Because like they're happy to pay me and I'm happy, I'm happy to be paid, but I'm also happy to be doing the work. Um, and that's just a situation that, that's ideal for everyone. And it just sort of builds on itself then because the trust just grows over time. Today, I give the, the first day of a Postgres class at a company where I've been consulting for about a year, year and a half now. So I keep giving them sort of dribs and drabs of information and obviously happy to do that. But now like we're getting into, okay, I should teach them to do what I know how to do. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And I actually think it went, it went great in, in part because I know them and we have a really good rapport. And so things flowed really well. And it was sort of half class and half discussion, even I would say a little bit of strategy session as well. And that would not have been possible if I just walk into the classroom sight unseen. Nice. Okay, let's get to the picks. Philip, what you got for us this week? I want to pick a book that is for authors. And the reason I want to do that is because I think it has lots of relevant lessons for freelancers. <laughs> the book is called Your First 1,000 Copies, The Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Marketing Your Book. It's by a guy named Tim Grawl, who is, I think, spot on when he ta talks about marketing simply as connecting with people and being helpful. That's sort of his definition of marketing. And I think that's also very relevant to freelancers, consultants who want to uh, build up a, an audience, if you will, of people online who, who listen to and trust them. I think this is a, a book that can really give you a, an easy-to-follow, practical way to do that. And it's also a very short read. It's like 100, looks like 147 pages. So uh, just a quick, easy read. And so that's my pick for this week. Excellent, Jonathan. Got any picks for us? Yes. Well, I had a different pick, but since we since we went into this topic, I've changed them too. First, a book called The Trusted Advisor by David Meister. I hope I'm saying that right. Meister. And this was a fabulous book given to me by one of my very last bosses when I actually had a job job. And it was, it was just great. I won't go into it, but uh, I think that uh, if you're interested in this topic, then the trusted advisor is kind of a Bible for this sort of thing. Uh, and then I've got two blog posts on trust that I think people will be interested in. Uh, one is called Trust Fractures, How Hourly Billing Hurts Software Projects, and How to Prevent Scope Creep When You Are Not Billing by the Hour. Ooh. And both of those are very centered on trust and creating relationships with clients that are based on trust. Oh, that's great. So I've got 
two picks this week. Uh, we had a discussion before the show started about some like ar- origins of words and so forth. And that got me thinking to two books that I read a few years ago that I might have mentioned on the show before. But if you've heard about them, then forgive me. So one of them is called The Victorian Internet. And it's by St- Tom Standage, who was just a fantastic author. I've read a bunch of his books and love them. And um, it's all about the telegraph. And if you always thought the telegraph as, oh, yeah, that thing, da-da-da-da-da, it was an incredible invention. But he doesn't talk about the technology. He talks about the people and the social stuff. So all the stuff we have nowadays on the Internet, they had on the telegraph. They played chess. They had chats. They did weddings. It was a very social environment, albeit with a very limited sector of society, the telegraph operators. Um, and he tells the story beautifully and how it evolved into the telephone and some of the uh, personalities and the technologies that were involved there. Really, really, like, just a fantastic, fun read. Um, and the other one, if I'm already talking about the telegraph, is uh, Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails, uh, how Abraham Lincoln used the telegraph to win the Civil War. And it is just, I never knew. I, I mean, I sort of knew in terms of timeline of history that they probably had telegraphs during the Civil War. But that was the first war in history in which the commanders actually found out from the front what was going on in real time, as opposed to waiting days or weeks to find out what had happened. And Lincoln, as president of the United States, he was hearing in real time what was going on and making decisions accordingly. And so this lists a whole lot of his uh, telegraph messages, telegrams, and what he wrote and what he said and how he reacted to it. Not quite as well written as Tom Standage's book, but still really, really excellent and uh, a fun, interesting read and uh, an interesting contrast to how we communicate today. And a lot of this is what sort of jogged my memory. A lot of the terms, a lot of the thoughts that we have today and the ways that we approach technology today were very highly influenced by the telegraph, even though I don't think any of us have have ever used one uh, in real life. Anyway, that is our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks, Jonathan and Philip. And we will see you all next week on The Freelancer Show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.